Hi, it's Laura. Welcome to another episode of Future Tripping. We're learning this week about OCD and are joined by Sarah Weber. Sarah is an art therapist and mental health counselor who has worked for years with those navigating anxiety, trauma, and challenges in the obsessive compulsive realm. While many listening may not have ever felt the experience of obsessing about something, I don't know anyone who is a stranger to feeling anxious now and then. We really appreciate Sarah joining us to share some of her knowledge and insights. Just a reminder that we'd love to hear from you. And if you have any questions for us, you can find us on our site at traumastewardship.com and through Instagram at Future Tripping with Laura. Welcome to another episode of Future Tripping. Today, I am in conversation with Sarah Weber. Sarah, thank you for joining us. Yeah, I'm so honored to be here. Thank you for having me. Really, really looking forward to this. We are going to be talking about anxiety today and probably pretty specifically about OCD. So why don't you tell us anything you would like us to know about you, the work you're doing, and then let's just focus on that and then we'll see where the conversation goes. Awesome. I'm so looking forward to this and wow, there's so much to say about those things already. So yeah, I'm an art therapist and licensed mental health counselor in Washington and licensed professional counselor in Oregon. I specialize in anxiety and OCD work with adolescents and adults and their support systems, whether that's partners or family members. And kind of fell into this field by accident as an art therapist. I'm really interested in supporting people make art as a form of healing and found out about anxiety and OCD in my post-master's work and really fell in love with exposure response prevention, working with people with OCD and anxiety who are really suffering, living normal lives because of really intense fear and doubt about themselves, about the world, about who they are as really driving behaviors that are unhelpful um, and ultimately preventing them from living life they want. And so that's kind of yeah. how I fell into this work. Great. Thank you so much. And one of the things I am aware of, Sarah, and this is something that I make mistakes around, is sometimes just taking for granted and moving right in with terminology, even things that are words that we use a lot. So let's just start with anxiety and then we'll move on to obsessive compulsive. Mm -hmm. But when we're talking about anxiety and folks having anxiety, experiencing anxiety, somebody being anxious, how do you define, I mean, we don't have to get like into the like minutia of the DSM or anything, but just what's a working definition that we can offer for our listeners? Worry. It's worry. For a lot of people, it's excessive worry. But people use anxiety as if it's an adjective of their emotional state. I'm anxious. Well, what's that about? Usually it's this like sense of dread. It's not just anxiety. It's not wanting whatever the feared outcome that you're worried about. The feeling that you get thinking about the feared outcome being true or coming true. That's anxiety. But anxiety is really just worry. Uh Okay, wonderful. Now let's move on to OCD. So OCD gets used in all sorts of ways from, oh, I'm super OCD. (laughs) I need my closet to be clean um, to actually being used, you know, properly with what it is. But can you talk us through OCD, the definition of it? Yeah, I think 
using OCD as an adjective is something that the OCD community finds really harmful and hurtful. So I'm glad you brought that up because it's not an adjective. It's not about cleaning your hands and having an organized kitchen. That's not OCD, right? OCD is made up of two parts, obsessions and compulsions. Obsessions are reoccurrent, unwanted thoughts that cause distress. Compulsions are things that people do, or including mental acts, to get rid of, prevent, or avoid the type of distress that the obsessions cause. So that's kind of the definition, in my opinion, about OCD. And it's really sneaky. Okay. Very mm-hmm. sneaky. And let's talk about first, like, what causes it? What do we know to be the causes of OCD? So it's thought to be in kind of both camps of inherited and something that's acquired, um, whether it's, you know, really genetics, right? Anxious parents and people create anxious kids and families. Usually OCD does run in families. But sometimes you see a person go through their life and go through some type of traumatic event. And then sometimes OCD does result after that happens. So you can see it kind of being both inherited and acquired. It's thought to be both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what's going on in one's brain when it's happening? Like, how do you talk about it with folks? How do you hear it described? Like, what's happening in our brain? People's brains are mistaking a threat for actual danger, right? This is the difference between I see a bear on the trail in front of me right now versus I'm thinking about a bear. It's possible a bear could be there. Your brain is mistaking perceived danger for actual danger, and your body is having physiological responses accordingly, right? That's the fight, flight, freeze response that's happening, in the brain scans of people with OCD, that response is happening more often, and there's no error catching that's happening, that this is firing off erroneously. That's not happening in the brains of people with OCD. So every time they have this response, they're thinking, yeah, there is actual danger. My body even tells me so. Okay, and then walk us through how does that translate then to what we see in terms of having to turn the light switch on and off three times to you brought up washing hands Mm -hmm. to, you know, eating food and a certain number. Like how, how does all that translate? So people with OCD have different types. There's different subtypes, but usually they all kind of come together through what's called like a core fear. So when we hear like the stereotype of OCD as someone who washes their hands, that's someone who fears becoming contaminated. Um, you know, through germs, or sometimes there's also like emotional contamination. It's a little bit different, but it's more than just that for people. It's not just that they could become dirty. It's okay. So what? So what about that? Germs do exist, right? And usually it does boil down to um, a deeper fear. It's called the core fear. This is an idea that's, you know, comes from Elna Yadin and Dr. Michael Greenberg, who, you know, have this concept that it's about avoiding a certain kind of emotion that feels intolerable. It's about being alone, being bad, ruining something, making some kind of mistake that you can't come back from, or suffering, and death and dying. So it's not about that there could be germs. It's the fact that I could possibly die as a result. 
And same with plugs and doors and kitchen knives and car locks and alarms and the windows being shut and seeing a child at a park. All of these things really could mainly boil down to being a bad person, ruining something, suffering immensely, and trying to avoid or prevent that from coming true. It's much deeper. I think people sometimes don't realize that about OCD. It's really interesting. Right. And sometimes one has an awareness that it's deeper. And sometimes there's not the awareness or somebody might not even know what the depth is. They just know that, whatever, they can't walk out of the room without doing something. It feels impossible. Yeah. Feels like it's not a choice. Right. And do we see this? Is there, I know certain situations occur at particular ages most commonly, mm-hmm. you know, when we're struggling with, okay, so yeah. is that where we see it most often come yeah. up is in adolescence? Most of the time it starts in adolescence and there is a, there is a rate in which um, I think it's 17 years that people don't get treatment because it goes either unnoticed or underdiagnosed or the sufferer feels so much shame that they don't bring it up for so long. Like between the original symptoms and that person getting help is I think, I believe it's 17 years. Uh Yeah. It's a Uh long time. And what's the thinking? Do you know what the thinking is in terms of what, is it just, there's so much going on in the brain during adolescence and all the explosive growth that happens during adolescence. So it makes sense that that's when (laughs) so many things are going to brew or is it more of the, you know, context and existential piece and going from childhood to adult. I mean, that happens younger in many different places too, but what, what's the thinking in terms of why adolescence? There's a lot going on in that period of development for sure, but my belief around it, and I think that some other OCD experts would agree that your like sense of self is really developing during that time as well. And um, in the inference-based CBT camp, which is also this newer treatment that is really kind of rocking the OCD community, there's this idea that instead of the core fear, it's the kind of person you fear becoming. And that would make sense to start to be uncovered or discovered or thought about more during that time of adolescence, to me, really fits and makes sense with development. Uh-huh. Right. Yourself, yeah, your self-concept, which is being formed right. in childhood. Right. Yeah. Right. Sure. Yeah. And then I can only imagine what neuroscientists explore around this in terms of the chemistry and the neurotransmitters and everything mm-hmm. else. So I want to go back to the that fear piece because I think part of what's challenging many places and certainly I think in our country with lack of awareness and lack of ability to for many people to be vulnerable around our fears and insecurities and things that we might find terrifying when we're not able you know there's in the counseling field <laughs> of name it to tame it when we're not able to articulate those things when we're not in an environment that's supportive of talking about it 
one of the things that I think can be hard there, and particularly, I mean, it's one thing if you're living with OCD and it's confusing. It's another thing if you have a roommate in college and you just notice they do a certain compulsion mm-hmm. repeatedly, or if you've got a sibling and you're like, wait, wait, what's up with that? When it doesn't directly connect obviously in an obvious way to like, oh yeah, that makes sense. That if you don't do that, then something might happen with a car and then somebody you love might be, I mean, like there's certain things that are more obvious than others. And so how big of a range is that in terms of that fear piece? And I hear what you're saying that for some, it, there is a lot of depth to it. And then I think for some, probably there can be less depth. It can be more, it could start out with a kernel and then like one's brain can just get a little bit sticky in certain ways, right? Oh yeah, OCD jumps around for sure. It's sticky in nature, but for most people, there is a story behind why they're doing what they're doing. At least that's, so I, I have to address the the two camps because it really changes how I talk about OCD. Great. Okay, great. Yeah, please do. So in the exposure response prevention ERP community and within that model, it's thought that intrusive thoughts, which are really what obsessions are, they're unwanted reoccurring thoughts, they are named intrusive thoughts, um, are random. And they just happen to us. And when we uh, give these things meaning is when we run into issues, right? If I have an intrusive thought about killing my dog, oh my gosh, I love my dog, why would I ever want to do that? Calling it random can make you feel like, oh, it doesn't have meaning. People with OCD are really interested in why am I having thoughts about my dog like that? Because I do love my dog. Why am I having thoughts? Does this mean something about me? Is it more likely to happen because I'm thinking about it? And then they distrust themselves and do compulsions. In inference-based CBT, it's believed that they're not random. We are giving our brain breadcrumbs and our brain is making a whole sandwich out of it. So I was looking at my dog and I was thinking how much I love my dog and how could people ever hurt their dogs. And then I had a thought, what if I could do that to my dog? And that really upset me. Well, it isn't random that I thought about that. My brain did follow a certain kind of sequence of thinking. And then I began to develop this story about times when I've accidentally hurt my dog and I've read articles about people who hurt their dogs and they look like normal people. Now I have this really juicy story that makes me feel like this really could be me. And it's about me being possibly a person who's negligent or irresponsible and I don't want to be that person. And only that kind of person is going to have particular worries that relate to that. So, okay. So then you have the worry. So the sequence, and then what do we do? Yeah. The sequence of it in ICBT would be trigger, doubt, feared consequence, anxiety, or dread compulsion. And within that sequence, the exposure response prevention model is going to target the right side of that sequence, which is compulsion and anxiety and dread. In the inference-based community, you're targeting really the doubt process itself, thinking that if you can unravel the doubt, 
you don't need the rest of the sequence. So they're really different models. And when I talk about OCD now, I'm like, well, which kind of OCD are we talking about? This kind of OCD or this kind of OCD? Because it is hard to hold both kind of philosophies at the same time when one is saying that obsessions are random and the other one is saying actually they're not right? They're about your self-concept and distrusting yourself. And usually that has a story. So that's what I'm grappling with, even in our own conversation of how to talk about this. <laughs> totally appreciate it. I think it, and it's really important to be able to surface these times when, you know, science is changing, thinking is changing, the field is changing. So, okay, before we get into the repercussions of that, let's go back a little bit because I know sometimes it can be helpful to hear things a couple times. So share with us the sequence again, please. And then let's walk it through in terms of what that looks like if you're going to target it over here or you're going to target it over here. Yeah. And I'll use my dog as an example. I am someone with generalized anxiety which I also don't feel like is that different from OCD, really. It's kind of thought to be on this like spectrum. And I can talk more about that. But the sequence, and then I'll talk about my dog as an example. So the sequence would be trigger, doubt, feared consequence, anxiety or dread, and compulsion. And sometimes it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to start with the trigger. Most people have a hard time identifying triggers. Most of the time it's, it could be like, okay, let's start with the doubt. What are you worried about? It sounds like what if might be, could, might, maybe, possibly, right? It also could be commands, statements, images, right? So for example, if my worry is what if my dog could be eaten by a coyote right? Really scary because I love my dog. The trigger then opens up the world to potentially things that are going to remind me of that doubt. Of course, I'm sure there's, there was an original trigger that made me have that doubt. But because now I'm worried that my dog could be eaten by a coyote, the world of triggers are taking my dog out on a walk, getting ready to leave the house with my dog, getting checking the mail because my dog could slip out. The world of triggers is abundant now. It's like a fertile ground <laughs> for anything to become a trigger. The feared consequence would be losing my dog, my dog being eaten. Anxiety or dread, I don't want that. I want my dog to live a really happy, long life. Losing my dog would feel horrible. I would feel really bad about myself as being like a not responsible dog owner to even let that happen. Compulsion is I'm going to check our video cameras around my house before I go out, make sure there's no coyotes hanging out. I'm going to kind of be hypervigilant on our walk and make sure there's nothing waiting for us. I'm going to hold my leash tight, right? Because I'm convinced that I need to do that to prevent something bad. Does that make sense? Beautifully said. So beautifully said. Okay. So now... Let's get help for this. Mm -hmm. So what's the one school of thought going to do for you? And what's the other school of thought going to do for you? Exactly. So with the exposure response prevention model, it would be 
kind of made up of two parts. So exposure and response prevention. So I want you to think lowercase e, capital RP. Response prevention is essentially not doing the behaviors that a person might be doing to feel safe. Right? So for me, it would be not checking video cameras, not holding my leash super tight, not being hypervigilant on the walk, not asking neighbors if they've seen a coyote, not researching articles about my neighborhood and coyotes, things like that, right? Sounds so silly. No, not at all. I mean, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> Definitely does not sound silly to me. You're right. Um, so that would be f- the first thing. So me keeping track, how often am I doing those things? Can I build more insight and awareness that I'm doing those things pretty often? Can I try to reduce that at least by 50%? There's lots of strategies um, to learn how how to do that. And then um, how can I also like not avoid as a really big part of that? If part of my values in my life are being outside, having fun, having adventures, like enjoying my dog, how am I neglecting my values because of this fear? How can I live a life that's more centered with my values, like being outside, right? So exposure would be being outside on purpose more often, because that does align with my values. There's three kinds of exposures, imaginal, interoceptive, and in vivo. And a, a therapist would work with a client to build kind of like a list of activities that would be you know, basically pushing the button on that fear so that we're cultivating anxiety on purpose and letting your brain acclimate to the stress. And over time, it's thought that it just doesn't bother you the same as it originally did. But it's really scary. So people are like, oh, what, do you have to like let your dog be exposed to a coyote? See if your dog dies or not? No, that would be horrible. I don't think I could handle that. (laughs) But... I could look at pictures of coyotes. I could think to myself, that could happen to me. That could happen to my dog. Doing that repeatedly, um, prolonged, and working gradually is what makes exposure effective. It's effective for two-thirds of sufferers. It is really effective treatment, but it's also scary, right? scary to think about for people, and it sometimes can feel inaccessible. Other exposures I could do would be to write a script of my worst case scenario and repeat it, right, again and again, until it just kind of loses its potency. An interoceptive exposure is for people who have a lot of like body sensations related to anxiety, like, you know, anxiety is felt in the body, chest tightness, sweating, you know, headaches, fatigue, all these things, right, shortness of breath. Interoceptive would be bringing on those physical sensations and allowing yourself to to tolerate them, distress tolerance, right? Then I can learn that shortness of breath doesn't equal dying or my dog being hurt. It just equals this kind of feeling, this sensation. I don't have to associate meaning. And then in vivo would be like doing things in real life going for a walk at nighttime, going for a walk and not doing the compulsions, real life stuff. And that is really fun and cool and therapy because therapists can do those things with clients. And now with the world of telehealth being open, therapists can do that, you know, at their home or at the client's home where really OCD often exists within the home. 
So that can's really cool. So that's what ERP would look like with my dog example, where I could look at pictures. I could say a script of the worst case scenario. I could watch videos of coyotes. I could go for walks in my neighborhood, which is living my values. In inference-based CBT, I would be sequencing the pattern out every time that I do feel like a rush of anxiety of listing it out. Then there's particular kind of modules and structure to it, but it's essentially trying to unpack what's the story behind that. Who do I fear becoming if that were true? Like, what would that say about me? And usually it's so opposite of a person's like real self, their true self. And so then therapy becomes about how do we kind of um, allow you to see that your feared self is not true. It's false. And there, and therefore restore trust in who you know that you actually are. How do you trust in your senses so that you no longer have doubt or believe in the doubt? It just doesn't have an effect. And so there is a little bit of response prevention kind of later on in that model. Like how do you just stop avoiding and live your life? Pros and cons of each, the exposure that's been around a long time. Yeah, it's been along around since 60s, 70s, and has a lot of research in the U.S. ICBT is newer to the U.S. and doesn't have empirical research in the U.S. yet, but it's been around for over 20 years, Netherlands and Canada. It is seemingly as effective as ERP, and I think is going to be a really big deal here in the next few years. People are just starting to like welcome it more and more. Um, and it's a more cognitive approach. So I think it feels less scary um, to, to start with for clients that another really big difference is the idea of certainty and uncertainty in the exposure response prevention model. We're told to tolerate the possibility of anything. Anything is possible. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe I could become a serial killer or child molester. Maybe not. It's possible. Anything's possible, right? That's really horrible to say to someone, <laughs> right? Like to instill that, like, oh, you have to tolerate the possibility that, yeah, that you could do something really horrible that's totally against your values and what you know about yourself because anything is possible. Yeah, that's part of the model. And I think that that's true that anything is possible, but I think we sometimes can reinforce doubt that people have about themselves because of that word being used that way. Uncertainty and doubt are not the same things. And so in ICBT, they're saying you actually do know yourself and can trust yourself. And there is like psychological certainty that you do have about the person that you are. And you can look at examples for who you really are in your everyday life. When you wake up and you brush your teeth and you text your mom and you take your dog for a walk, well, what kind of person does that? When you go to work and you interact with your clients and you write your clinical notes, what kind of person does that? And then you come home and you make dinner and then you take the garbage out. What kind of person does that? Like we do have certainty about who we are and we don't have to say it's possible that you're going to be a serial killer when you have no intent to do that that goes against your values. You aren't angry. 
you have, you don't want to, you have no desire. We can mm-hmm. trust that we do want to know ourselves. So just yeah, really so different. I appreciate that. Yeah. Very. Yes. Sarah, let me ask you about how important is it to know the origin in terms of like where it first starts for someone? I know for me, so I have OCD. The first time I remember anything happening, it might have happened earlier, but the first time I remember it in my brain is probably 10-ish, 11-ish. My mom had a very rare form of lung cancer, super precarious situation. That's the first time I remember Mm. the, okay, here's what I need to do to leave the room. Here's what I need to do when I'm leaving the house. Mm -hmm. Here's like, that's when I remember like all of those behaviors happening. I never connected the OCD to like, if I don't do this, there's not going to be a cure for cancer. My mom's going to die. Probably not that complicated to think about. Like everything felt very, very out of control. A big part of OCD, of course, is trying to like have some control. So even if like all the threads weren't there, you know, I do think there is a tremendous amount of importance in making sure we're not isolated around it, making sure there's no shame around it, right? Yeah. I know for me, I mean, this for for folks who are older, this will make sense. And for folks who are younger, it's just, we still have a long way to go, but how far we've come with a lot around mental health is so wonderful. I know for me, the first time I ever knew it was anything was reading David Sedaris's writing <laughs> because David Sedaris talks so openly and beautifully and of course with great humor about having OCD. So I think that knowing that you're not alone, knowing it's nothing to be ashamed of, knowing that like you're in really good company. I think all of that's really, really important. I'm wondering what the thinking is on how important it is to understand like what the actual origin is. So present day when I have, you know, Mm -hmm. any number of random OCD behaviors, I'm not like, there's no conscious thought of like, oh, this is going back to when my mom died. And if I didn't do this and all of that, I just know it's annoying to check the stove like 10 times because I don't cook. And so why am I checking the stove? Right. So what are your thoughts on that in terms of that origin piece? I think people with OCD always want to know the origin piece and think that if they think about it long enough, they're going to uncover it and solve OCD. And that's false. So I think that that's really important to say. (laughs) Some people can easily point to having a trauma experience, like a parent being sick in childhood and say, this is when OCD started for me. It was a really unstable time. I felt so scared. Losing my mom felt like the worst thing that I could even imagine. And so my behaviors came out of trying to prevent or keep safe or felt just right. Um, Because that is another type of OCD. But for a lot of people, thinking about that more just kind of unravels them and is really like compulsive too. It's rumination. It's not really a problem that you can solve by thinking and thinking about it more might just lead you down the rabbit hole even more. Um, But there might still be a story that we don't have to find the origin story, perhaps, although, you know, sometimes we can. And then it's like, oh yeah, this is what really kind of set it off in motion. But that isn't problem solvable either, 
right? Maybe that's the origin of the doubt. So an ICBT would be like the primary doubt and then there's secondary doubts that kind of follow that, but they're all kind of originating from this like one idea that you could become this kind of person or what if, whatever. But yeah, I just don't think it's important necessarily to uncover the original thing because right, m- what matters right now is that you're suffering right now, right? With what you're saying, one of the things that I keep thinking about is how powerful mindfulness, Buddhism, I'm sure many other traditions too, but I'm more familiar with Buddhism, how powerful that is to address this, to be able to come back. I mean, the kind of <laughs> the idea of like, let's not overthink this too much, you know, like, <laughs> and being able to come back to the mind is a very complicated thing. Our brains are exceedingly complicated, whether it's nature, whether it's nurture, here is the present reality. And like you're saying, not get into like a whole, I don't, I I don't mean not do it justice, but not get into a whole perseveration of like where this came from, what it's about and being able to try, I don't know anybody who it's their strong suit, but try to come from a place of self-compassion about what I don't know about this on some level is everything. But what we do know just from science is the brain is very complicated. Yes. The mind is very complicated. Everybody has a lot going on. A whole combination of nature and nurture can come together such that for some people, their thoughts are fluid. It's like water on a duck's back. It just rolls off. And for other people, it is like you cannot shift gears and your brain just has really, really, really sticky moments. And if again, easier said than done, as you're saying, but like if everything can be held in a place of self-compassion, ideally with humor, which is what David Sedaris does so beautifully, but from that place of self-compassion of like, well, here's what we're working with. And so given that, what's the plan? And then as you've outlined, you know, there's at least two different paths of treatment here. Um, But I think that that is something that I know can be really hard for people, particularly, of course, if folks feel isolated. If folks feel alone, if if you've never had a relative with OCD, if you've never had a friend with OCD, if folks aren't talking about it openly in school, if you don't have like some loving community around you where people can honor mental health situations, but also not take it too seriously, then I think that's where we get into the shame piece. And then there you're just like in a really, really, really tough spot. Oh, the shame is immense for people, especially, especially people with more taboo themes, like having pedophile OCD or harm OCD or like aggressive or sexual obsessions. The shame and stigma is real. It doesn't feel safe to talk about those things. They might've lost friends or people look at them differently or they've met therapists who were like reacted the wrong way or said the wrong thing. It's really, really real. I really love the OCD community is so welcoming and they're it, like the IOCDF and lots of OCD support groups out there. It's so important to meet other OCD sufferers. So you don't feel like you're this crazy person who, you know, has to count 13 times to turn off the light. It's not just you. (laughs) Right. But self-compassion can be really painful for people with OCD. It's not easy. It can really be felt like an exposure. It can be really distressing, partly because of the trauma element of when you acknowledge your own pain, you also sometimes have to acknowledge the love you didn't receive by people that you should have received it from. 
really painful. People also with OCD and anxiety can be really, really critical and harsh on themselves, which is again, triggering the fight, flight, freeze response in the brain. So you have this being set off by OCD and anxiety, but you also have it set off by self-criticism kind of throughout the cycle. Really, really harmful. But if you're having obsessions about scary things like becoming a killer, impulsively hurting someone you care about or hurting a child, right? Um, Practicing self-compassion feels very unsafe. It's like giving yourself permission to become the worst version of yourself. And so the idea of practicing self-compassion can feel like very dangerous to ask someone to do with OCD sometimes, depending on how they're feeling about themselves or the thoughts that they're having. I think that's really important to know and to talk about too. And I also don't want to pathologize that all anxiety is bad anxiety. There's appropriately felt anxiety that matches the situation that you're in, that people can also have a sensitivity or intolerance to feeling. This is what it feels like to be anxious, appropriately anxious. Right. So building on what you're saying, prioritizing do no harm of course, above everything else, right? So yes, when we're having thoughts and the compulsions, for example, that could go into the realm of danger, I imagine we would both agree that one could be empathetic, compassionate, and still do everything we can and need to do to make sure that we do no harm, right? And understanding that the shame Anything that keeps us isolated, not going to be helpful, right? And so completely agree with you on, you know, the self-compassion. I don't know anybody for whom it's their strong suit. And certainly for some people, it's going to be scarier and just more foreboding or kind of off-putting than others. I think, like you're saying, lots of good resources around this. We are making a lot of progress with mental health in general, also still a long way to go. So doing what we can do to make sure to try to lower the shame and stigma, that of course is not mutually exclusive, right? With making sure we're putting into place whatever parameters need to be there. So we're not causing harm. Other people aren't causing harm. And sometimes, you know, the most compassionate, loving thing we can do is make sure to really contain yeah. And there's a difference between, you know, ego syntonic and dystonic, right? Ego syntonic is people's thoughts aligning with their worldviews. This is when people are suicidal and they're like, yeah, it actually brings me comfort, comfort to think about that. I actually do want to not be here, right? That is aligning with their beliefs of the world at that time. Suicidal ideation can kind of go back and forth between ego syntonic and dystonic people with homicidal ideation who like do want to actually hurt people and don't think that's bad and wrong and are okay with that. That's not an intrusive thought. They're agreeing with that. Ego dystonic, it's unwanted. It does not align with who they are. And that's OCD, right? So it's really important that people know that if they're having thoughts that are scary, it does not reveal something about them that's true or accurate. And so when we talk about like, do no harm, I want people to know, like you can have harmful, scary thoughts and that's not really your intent or desire or you. Um, and when we're talking about, do no harm, like safety prevention, like 
Yeah, if you used the stove and you actually do not remember if you turned it off, go check. Of course, I'm not telling you to like leave it on and let your house like burn down, but check it only one time and then trust what your eyes are telling you. Trust what your nose is telling you that you don't smell anything and trust yourself that you wouldn't want that to happen and would, you know, have this desire to turn it off if you knew it was on, right? That's the difference too. What is appropriately like normal safety prevention and what is above and beyond because you're so, um, in your fear, feared self. Right. Yeah. It's beautifully said, Sarah, I know we talked about this a few minutes ago, but I think for so many folks, including myself, and for many I know who have OCD, that sticky brain piece is something that can be so challenging. Similarly, I think with anxiety, where it can be like, you know, in Alaska, they talk about microclimates. It can be like a little microclimate of a storm that just keeps taking different forms. It just keeps floating around. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of folks with anxiety have that as well. You're like, okay, well, now I'm not anxious about this. Why am I anxious about this now? And I think that can be challenging with OCD where it can be like, oh my God, this is so like, I moved through that and now here I am. My brain is sticky about this. What do we know is going on there when our brain gets sticky like that? And, and, and maybe, so that's one question. And then connected with that is what is a way to talk about that such that for folks who have never experienced that, I think it can, I mean, and I, and I, I feel for them on this. I think it can be very confounding slash super irritating than to deal with folks whose brains are sticky. If you're somebody where it's just like, you know, your brain's super fluid and it's like water on a duck's back, you can watch somebody spin out in this way and be like, the fuck are you doing? What is happening? Can we just like get out of the house? We check the stove, you know, but like what, what would be helpful in terms of folks who have never had that experience, like understanding in terms of where our brain gets stuck and you kind of can't get out of that gear. I'll say there's a lot to say still on that. Like whether, like why the sticky things happen. And sometimes it is because of recovery, like when you're, when you're working to extinguish one kind of OCD, OCD sometimes fights back and will pop up in another area, right? That is kind of the nature of OCD. It doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. It means sometimes that you're making progress and it's just really hard. Um, we know that OCD ebbs and flows with people's life. It's not something that usually goes away a hundred percent. Usually it will go away for a while and then the stress of life will kick back up and it'll show up in a different way. And so it is like a thing that people often need to work on over time on and off. And hopefully they'll, they'll learn the tools that it's not such an impact on them with people. This is why I like the core fear of ERP and the feared self of ICBT is that there might be some type of common element to the randomness of the stickiness right? If you have responsibility OCD and you have, um, pedophile OCD and contamination OCD at different points in your life, they all might be connected through a concept of yourself, who you fear becoming. Those all might have something in common that is really what it's about. So it's not that you're so mentally ill that you have all these different kinds of OCD. It's that you have this one concept that is really scary and bothersome and it's just showing up in different forms. I think what's um, 
helpful for supports to know one is to, to be open-minded and ask questions and to be non-judgmental, of course. But I think about this in terms of like parents of children who having with anxiety and OCD who are like watching their kids suffer and it's like creates anxiety and distress in them. Cause that's like the normal empathy of a parent to feel what your child is feeling. And then I think about sometimes parents or partners or other family members who just get burned out. They're like, I've done all the things to help you get out of the house and I'm just ready to go. Like I can't do this anymore. And what I'll say is get support around it. Like there are, there's a, what's called space programs for parents so that they can learn how to support their child or family member. There are books and workbooks for support people to know like, what. how do I support someone in my life with this? Not providing reassurance or accommodation is a really huge part. But if you're really wrapped up into somebody's anxiety, where they're asking you questions repeatedly to hear a particular kind of answer, or they're asking you to do stuff that kind of doesn't make rational sense to you, but it makes sense to the sufferer. It's important to not like pull the plug on that right away either, because it can feel really like abrupt to have support and then have it taken away because a therapist is suggesting not to do that. (laughs) Walk it back in baby steps, you know, ask questions like, is this an anxiety thing or is this something else? You know, what's making you think this? Um, And to walk back the support, not just totally pull it away. And so there's usually like baby steps I'll have people do. So instead of giving verbal reassurance, can we create a nonverbal or an image to point to that lets that person know something that they need to know in order to move on? But getting people help and early help is really important because OCD can really take over someone's life and take money and time and you know, think things away from them. And it is a whole family effort, I think. Right, right. So just let's spend a couple more minutes on that. If you have somebody you care about, I mean, big spectrum here. So let's say you've just got to university and you're living with somebody who has OCD and you don't have a lot of experience with it. Let's say you've got a friend who's just been struggling for some time let's say you're responsible for somebody, like you said, parent, you're a grandparent, you're an aunt and uncle, you're a guardian, regardless of just kind of where you are on that. I mean, it'll influence a bit, but what do we know to, and, and of course, you know, there'll, there'll be specifics depending on how it's manifesting, but what do we know to be some of the do's and some of the don'ts if you're interacting with somebody who is, you know, struggling Again, that can be on a continuum too, but just what can be really, really helpful for those folks? Yeah. I think number one is like, don't shame, blame, or invalidate, right? Or criticize. It's going to make everything worse. Do ask questions. And if anything, if you're not sure what to do, do what they're asking, but only one time set a boundary, right? You're asking me to check underneath the bed or you're asking me to wash your sheets for you. Okay. I'll do this one time, and then I'm done. I'm walking away. Reassurance questions are looking for a particular answer. Information questions are satisfied with the information you're giving. So with what you're saying there, be able to don't shame, don't blame, don't invalidate. Okay. So just trying to be very 
mindful of one's speech around this. It's hard right? enough, hard enough to do yeah. already as a parent for many. Exactly. As a parent, as I mean. Person. <laughs> as a, oh my gosh, as a friend, as a housemate, as a colleague. So that would be one. The other, ask questions. I mean, you know, with anything, right? Educate ourselves as much as we can. So we're not putting that burden on them. And then ask questions in however supportive way that we can. And then you're saying, try to just be really, really clear on the difference between oh, do you need information out of this? Or are you looking for reassurance? And we're not going to then get into a whole cycle there where you're asking it over and over and I'm saying it over and over. And like at some point we're calling this a wrap and you're saying call it a wrap earlier. Yeah. Avoid later. avoid the power struggles, you know, too, like getting in an argument with anxiety or OCD logic, you're never going to win because OCD will always have an answer or another what if, or it's possible. And then you can't really argue with that because anything's possible. Um, there's a particular kind of way to validate someone who's suffering, which is not to agree with necessarily what they're saying, but agree with their struggle, right? If I say, I'm really worried my dog could possibly be eaten on a walk. You're not going to say, oh, yeah, that's totally a valid concern to have. Like, there are coyotes here. Wow, you just made me really scared that I should be extra hypervigilant, right? But you are going to validate, wow, that's really hard. That's a hard kind of thought to be having, right? I could see how that thought would stress you out. This would be difficult for anyone to be thinking about. So then building on that, let's take it a step further. So then if the person is like, okay, reassure me, however they ask that, then how do you respectfully, compassionately, and effectively not indulge it? You offer a supportive statement instead of necessarily like what they want to hear, right? So um, there's some really great books on this, like uh, Eli Leibowitz's um Breaking Free of Child Anxiety and OCD has like a really great um, couple worksheets in there for parents. But it's, I believe, you know, I believe in you, right? I, kn I know you've been through difficult things before and I, I trust that you'll be able to handle this. I'm here for you. We don't have to solve the problem for them, but we can let them know that, you know, we trust them. We believe in their ability to cope with it. And, um, it's like a mindful response. We're not going to disprove or get into an argument with the content, but we're going to also acknowledge like, yeah, this is what anxiety feels like. Like, this is a big worry for you. I'm sorry you're going through that. I got your back. You know, I believe in your ability to do this. What's a baby step towards it? You don't have to do the whole enchilada today. What would be, what's one step you can do? Right. And understanding, like you said earlier, that sometimes the most loving thing you can do is be able to say like, hey, here, here, I'm going to do this one time. Yeah. We're not going to do this over and over. Because I think sometimes we confuse like what's loving is to just stay in here with it. And yeah. again, that can be like the last thing sometimes that folks need. For sure. For sure. I think parents really struggle with that more than like I think adult partnerships do. But um, I think parents also contribute a lot to a kid's experience of anxiety 
because the parents will have anxiety about the kid having anxiety or parents will have anxiety about the kid failing or messing up or making a mistake. And the kid can sense their parents' hesitation or doubt. And it like creates the doubt for the kid. So I try to tell parents, if you don't have the emotional spoons to give, don't, don't be emotionally available. Then say, Hey, I see you're suffering. I'm really sorry. I'll be back. (laughs) You know, like take a minute to be a human yourself rather than try and risk invalidating or contributing to the problem. You know, and I think with what you've said too, that I think is particularly hard, not unique to OCD, but it is so tenacious. And I think that that's, that's the thing too, that I think a lot of people don't understand about OCD is just how exhausting it is. Everything going on. I mean, the triaging in one's brain. (laughs) And so that can be so, so, so exhausting. Um, And it certainly for the person who's going through it. And then also for their loved ones that that's, you know, to your point of being able to pace oneself. is really important. Basic needs being met really help reduce symptoms, right? Getting good sleep. Major. People with OCD's brains are working harder than other people's brains for sure. And sleep is a huge component of how, how many symptoms are going to show up or what's the strength of it today. Teaching people to rate their intensity of anxiety or worry is also really important. And having like a shared vernacular in support systems is really helpful like, you know, zero to 10, where, where are you at? What's it like right now for you? It's shows a curiosity and interest in that person's suffering without like engaging in the suffering and it invites insight. So I also like that, you know, like zero to 10, where are you at with that, with that worry or fear? Yeah. 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 One of the stories that we wrote about in trauma stewardship that we use in our family all the time was a First Nation community in Canada. And one of the understandings they had in their community was if anybody needed a circle called for anything, somebody could call for a circle, everybody would show up, they'd be there for the person. And, you know, whether happy, sad, whatever it was, but particularly if somebody had a need or something was going through something, everybody would show up. And the understanding, however, (laughs) was that if you are called again to a circle by the same person in the future for similar material, that there was an understanding in that community that the kindest, most loving, most respectful thing you could do is you stand up, you walk over and you sit yourself down somewhere else. And then every Everybody else in the circle has to move, leaving that person there with this communication of this is not benefiting you. And we are not like on our watch bearing witness to this. We're not colluding with this, not because we can't be bothered, but this is not good for you. And so this kind of whole concept of just making sure that you know when to move the circle, right? And that sometimes that is the most loving. And I think that goes to also, it can be very tricky to do, but when one is skilled at using humor, I think that's another force that can be exceedingly helpful. If it's pure humor, Yeah, it can be really powerful. 
it's such a great strategy for fighting OCD for sure. Like I, I talk about my anxiety as Veronica and I'm like, Oh, Veronica, you suck. You know, like, why are you doing this to me? And it just invites me like a little bit of space to decide, like, do I want to believe what Veronica's saying? Does, is it, does it benefit me? Is it, does it align with like the life I want? Oh, no, Veronica, you're just like a dark cloud over my day. You're just here to hate on me. And then I can still like show Veronica love because she's still part of me. She wants the best for me, but she's making me scared. Right. So I think there's so many ways to invite humor into fighting anxiety and OCD and letting people in on that. Right. Like if I shared Veronica with a friend and then a friend's like, it sounds like Veronica's here. And I'm like, Oh, you're right. It's Veronica. Then we have this like shared thing in common that people can clue me in to my own experience of anxiety without shaming or blaming. You know, I think that that could be a really cool thing for family and loved ones to do. But I also think it's so hard and brave for people to even say what kind of fears and intrusive thoughts that they're having. Like it requires so much bravery because it feels so exposing. And if family members aren't equipped or feel like they have to understand in order to like agree or affirm, like it's not, that's not safe. You know, like people don't have to understand to accept or to agree with, or to support you getting better. Um, it's really, really vulnerable for people to say what's going on for them inside that alone. So if, if people are being open and asking questions, um, that they should be prepared to support that person and not further ask them more deeper questions without like a therapist or support or knowledge, you know? Right. And that's, I think, where the curiosity and I don't think Jack Hornfield would ever say he's the one who came up with it. But one of his teachings um, that he says a lot is don't believe everything you think. And that's just, you know, having some like kind of move the circle, don't believe everything you think, having some go to things that work for you. And like you're saying, your loved ones hopefully with some, a little bit of irreverence, a lot of love and tenderness, some humor. I think that can be really, I think that can be really, really powerful for folks. And also, as we've talked about it, what you're saying with the sharing, anything that folks can do when they have depression to be able to share that. Same thing with anxiety, same thing with OCD. And I think particularly figures who we hold in high regard, and this is what's been powerful about athletes coming out about this or, you know, folks in Hollywood or depending on, you know, who you look up to. But I think, you know, what David Sedaris, I mean, he's not the only one, John Green, the author has also talked about his. And I think that has meant so much for people who can look at those folks and be like, man, if they, like they, who we hold in such high regard still present day are still struggling with this, it just can do so much to help reduce any of those headwinds that can really work against us when we're trying to get help. Learning about other people's OCD and the things that they're struggling with is super helpful for learning about ourselves because it might feel a little bit safer to learn about someone else and apply it to ourselves than to just look at ourselves. It's really awesome to see the people coming out. There's so many OCD therapists who are also saying that they have OCD. That's amazing. I love that. I love that people are being more open with what they're going through. It's only going to help the community. Yeah. 
Last question, Sarah, you've been so generous with your time. One of the things we always try to offer listeners is some really concrete strategies for sustaining oneself. So you've given us some windows into your life, which is so helpful. And I so appreciate that. In terms of what you do to sustain yourself, just to keep on moving through your life, what are some of the strategies, one, two, three, whatever you'd like, that you return to that are non-negotiables that really help you just in general in your life? Oh, man. Yoga walks, regardless of the fears. Self-compassion work every day, every day in an embodied way. Um, I think self-care can be really inaccessible, but reframing it as like a self-compassion practice, like hand over my heart, breathing in and out, telling myself something that I need to hear, knowing that I'm not alone, right? acknowledging my feelings. Even for really small stuff, dropping a piece of bread, right? Running out of ink during the middle of a session. Self-compassion has been a really big game changer in my life. And I'm really glad to have it as a tool. You don't have to learn a million therapy strategies. Like it can just be one and the way that you apply it can be diverse. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for offering your tremendous expertise. I know this is going to be so helpful. As you said, there's so many different places we could go with this in terms of how it connects with larger anxiety. And I think it's something that more and more people are willing to talk about. And so you sharing so much expertise with us is invaluable. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it and hope we can do this again. Our podcast, Future Tripping, is a Trauma Stewardship Institute production. I, Laura, am your host and producer. Our incredible executive producer and sound engineer is Olivia P. Sunier, without whom this podcast would not be possible. It's edited and mixed by Tom Stiles, with original music by Cameron DeVore. Our graphic designer is Evie Burroughs-White. Thank you for downloading and subscribing, and, as always, please give us a holler with any questions or suggestions. We can be found at traumastewardship.com and on Instagram at Future Tripping with Laura. There you can find both an email and phone number where you can ask your questions of our upcoming guests. I am grateful you joined us. Please remember, however your overwhelm is feeling today, you're not alone. You're in good company, and I look forward to being with you here on Future Tripping again next week. Future Tripping.